0: If you would please open your Bibles to 1st Timothy chapter 4. We are going to continue in our sermon series through the pastoral epistles, continue through 1st Timothy 4, and last week we preached 6 through 10, and in many ways 6 all the way through 16 uh, really serve as one cohesive unit, although many of the Bibles break them up, and I chose to break them up primarily for time's sake. Uh, However, we we are going to find that uh, there are many similarities in this portion of the text and last week's portion of the text, but there will be some uh, important distinctions and differences, and I hope you look forward to hearing them uh, as much as I look forward to reading them and studying them. So I would ask if you would please follow along with me. We are going to start in verse 11 of chapter 4, and please, as I said, follow along, for these are God's very words to us. Paul continuing in his letter to his young pastor, he says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, one of the things that I need to say right off the get-go is that Typically, if if you've ever gone to any kind of a Baptist seminary, specifically for the Baptists in the room, uh, they typically teach, uh, and it's kind of become a joke, uh, the classic Baptist three-point sermon. Right, Every sermon has to have three points. It's kind of a joke in, in Baptistic circles. And uh, I don't force myself into that kind of a routine, but it's going to seem like it because last week we had three sermon points and this week we have three sermon points as well. But I just want to say right off the bat, I'm, I'm not going to do that every single week. So if you're not a fan of that method... You can take a sigh of relief. But there were three important things that I see sprinkled throughout this text. And, and really what this text is, is Paul continuing to tell Timothy essentially what it means to be a good pastor. Right? What does it mean to do ministry right? How does Timothy take this office that has been given to him and how does he do it justice? So, in many ways, what we're looking at here are, are sort of the the, the the qualities of a good pastor, or the ingredients, if you will, of a good pastor. What What's a good pastor supposed to do? And Now, we could talk for a long time on the specifics, and we could go to a lot of other texts, but Paul here gives us a very basic overview of what good pastors need to be doing. What does it mean to take that office and use it well? And, and there's three things I think we see that are important for all good pastors to do. Good pastors... Preach, good pastors practice, and good pastors persevere. A good pastor will preach, he will practice, and he will persevere. So those are what we're going to look at. We begin with the preacher. Throughout this text, we see Timothy is called to preaching. and, And I'm sort of using that term as an umbrella term for what we call the ministry of the word. It is the pastor's job to get the word of God to the people of God. He is to, and the primary way he does that is through preaching. Now, it happens in other avenues as well, counsel, and just living life together, and, and maybe like we have Sunday school and more of an informal teaching session. But the primary duty of the pastor is to preach the word of God, to minister, administer the word of God to the people. We see this right away in verse 11. Command and teach these things. These things being everything Paul has given him so far. And we talked last week about how the entire doctrine of the faith is is part of Timothy's commission to give to the people. But Timothy is called here to command and teach. This, This mirrors what Paul talked about earlier when he was defining the qualification of elders. And he was limiting it to the office of men. And he says, I do not allow a woman to what? Teach or exercise authority. Command Authority, teach, and teach. So we see it mirroring the qualifications of the office itself. That Timothy is called to command things, which is to prescribe, to uh, tell people what the word of God is telling them to do. He is to call people to live a certain way and believe certain things. He is authoritatively commanding his people, prescribing them an instruction, and he's also teaching them, enlightening our mind, helping us understand the oracles of God. So Timothy was called to be a preacher, to command and teach this apostolic deposit. And we see it not only here, but he he picks up on this again in verse 13. Paul, we know earlier, was planning, he left Timothy in Ephesus and he wanted to return. He wanted to see Timothy again. So he tells him in verse 13, again, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to to exhortation, to teaching. So again, he mentions that he calls Timothy to this ministry of the word. He calls him to be a preacher. And I want us to look at those three things. First, he, he, he tells Timothy in verse 13 to devote himself, meaning this is a constant practice of your church. You are always doing this. You are always in this. You are immersed in this. And what you need to be doing as a preacher is, first and foremost, you need to be engaged in the public reading of Scripture. Now, the word public is sort of assumed by the context because this word that we have here for reading is so often associated in the Bible, um, in the Greek Old Testament, with what the Jews would do in the synagogue. And what they would do in the synagogue is they would gather and they would open the scrolls and they would read it for long periods of time. And then there would be a little bit of exhortation, but long reading of scripture was common among the Jewish people. And we're going to see that Paul is commanding that practice be done with the New Testament in Timothy's day. You need to gather around as a people of God and you need to read the word. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, and there's a lot of really neat things associated with this. For starters, this is a subtle way of Paul actually ascribing uh, his message as being God-breathed, the Word of God. Because he's telling Timothy to publicly read Scripture, and he just got done telling him to command and teach these things. And these things are his letter. So Paul is actually putting his letter on par with Exodus, It's on par with Isaiah. He's saying, yeah, you should should be reading Isaiah to your people. You should be reading Exodus to people. Read Moses, read Isaiah, and don't neglect also, read me. And we see this throughout the New Testament. New Testament writers saying, when this letter is read among you. So, So Paul is really giving an air of authority subtly to his own letter in this. But he is calling the Christian people to take the scriptures they have, to take the apostolic deposit, and read it. Now, there's also a bit of a, a, a pragmatic reason for this. Uh, and that specifically is that we have to remember that the context here. This was a day and age where the public reading of Scripture as a gathered community was one of the only ways these people had access to the Scriptures. And I want, to, I want us to remind us of that by just a bit of a rabbit trail. I want to tell you a story. So I, I'm the kind of uh, person who, I, although I, I like the ESV, it's probably my favorite translation. I, I think that all of them are beneficial. Uh, I appreciate all of them. When I study for a sermon, I read all of them to help me f- best understand the text. So you'll very rarely hear me sort of ragging on, a, on some of the popular Bible translations. And, and I realized that I didn't have an NIV. I didn't have my own. And I had a study Bible, but the print is just so small. It's, I, don't, I would never want to preach from that. So I decided to go online and order an NIV. And this came in. And I had the audacity to be unhappy with it. It wasn't what I wanted. It's, I I don't like, I I looked at the pictures, I thought I did the research, I understood it was large print, but it was a lot bigger than I was expecting it to be, and I like my Bibles to be a little bit longer, and a little bit thinner. This is like a brick, like I can't put this in my bag, and it's uncomfortable, I can't hold anything else in this hand, it's, I don't like big, bulky Bibles. That's why I wanted to get away from my study Bible, and then I ordered this, and I just came in with this big, bulky Bible. It's the exact opposite of the purpose, and I just don't like the way it's formatted, With the large print, it's like, you know, it's just not structured very well. It's just like letters and print. And I wasn't happy with it. And how dare I? What a privilege that we live in a day where you can just order a Bible. I am so privileged that I actually had the audacity to look at this and go, eh, this is amazing. You remember when this letter that we're studying was written, these were largely illiterate people. And on top of that, they were living in a day and age when the, the, what we call um, what was then called a codex, which we now call a book Codices and books are essentially the same thing. For most of the ancient world, they did everything on scrolls. And it was the early Christians who started utilizing codexes or books because they realized it's easier if we do things back to back and bind them all together. That's helpful, rather than having tons and tons of scrolls lying around. But the book itself wasn't even really invented yet. The canon wasn't closed yet, so there was was nothing to bind together yet. And even if they did find a way to bind all these scrolls together, they didn't know how to read them. So they were forced to gather together as a church. And this was the only way the people of God could consume the word. Was for Timothy and other leaders and teachers who understand and read and have access to these things and understand these things to deliver them to the people. So we see uh, this point, if we go on this rabbit trail for a minute, it should really make us thank the Lord for the day and age we live. That I have tons of, I have Bibles in my office right now. If there's someone in this room who wants a Bible, you can just have one of mine. And I'll go buy a new one. And that's amazing. God has been good to us. I mean, we live in a day. Can you imagine? I just want you to imagine. I know we don't know what Paul looked like. But since he's not God, I'm going to give you permission to try to envision his face. And I want you to try to picture the look on Paul's face. If I had the ability to go back in time and tell him, By the way, Paul, I just want you to know that roughly 2,000 years from now, There will be millions and millions of people, huge dominant countries with mass literacy where you're expected to know how to read. You're actually pitied if you don't know how to read. There will be millions and millions of people all over the world who know how to read and the Bible will be the best selling book in the world by a long shot. And tons of people will have access to all of your writings and all of Peter's writings and all of the prophets at their fingertips, multiple times a day. We'll be handing them out for free to people on the sidewalks. Imagine the look on his face. God has been good to us. However, there's more to just a pragmatic element to the public reading of Scripture, there really is something holy. And meaningful about us deciding to gather as a community and hear these words together. As Jesse always says at the beginning of our worship ceremonies, we were not given Bibles so that we could go sit under a tree, learn it, and just forget everybody else. The Bible itself doesn't teach us to do that. There is something powerful in gathering together as a corporate people to be bathed and washed in the Word of God together. And that's why we today, we do not neglect this practice That's why we read scripture at the beginning of our services, long portions of scripture. Today we read a long proverb. What a blessing to hear the word of God together, to meditate on it it together as a corporate people. That's why we want our worship services to be be just, just covered in Scripture. We want to sing Scripture. We want to read Scripture. We want to preach Scripture. We want to understand Scripture. We want to pray Scripture. We want it to be covered in Scripture. We want to gather together and we want to read the public reading of the Word of God. We come here to gather around the Word. We don't come here to gather around the world's smartest poets and smartest scientists and smartest literary critics. We come here to hear from God. And so we come and we gather around the word and it is the minister's job to minister that word, to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. But he goes on to say, you're not just to read scripture, Timothy. Your job and the job of the other pastors is also not just the public reading of scripture, but back in verse 13, to exhortation. That's the application of these things we hear. It's a call to action. It's the minister's job not just to read the word of God, but to tell you, here's what it says, go do it. You see, the minister's job is not just to reach your mind, it's to reach your heart. Our job as pastors in this specific church is not just to try to educate you, but we want you to be changed, and we are as sheep in this same fold. We want to be changed. I don't just want to know what the Bible says. I want it to transform me. I want I want it to change my actions. I want to be exhorted and called to apply it. But although we are called to apply the Word of God, we are still called to understand it. You can't apply it until you understand it, which is why he's not only called to publicly read and exhort, but he said in verse 14, or forgive me, verse 13, the public reading scripture to exhortation and to teaching. That's why one of the qualifications of elders is able to teach. It's one of the few that the deacons don't have. It's a unique job of the pastoral office to help the congregation understand these things that are being said, that are being read. We don't just read scripture, we don't just apply it, but we want to understand it rightly in its context. Such an important job, which is why the book of James says that teachers of the word will be held more responsible. They will be judged with a stricter judgment on the day of judgment. Because it is a weighty, weighty thing to be responsible for telling people what to think about what God has said. And so what we see in summary of this first point is that Timothy is called to be a preacher He is called to minister the word of God to his people, and in so doing, we see that the word of God is central to our worship gatherings, and not only was this true in Timothy's day in the first century as Paul is uh, writing this in the first century, and this was not only true of the Jews beforehand, we see this is crystal clear throughout the early centuries of the Christian church. I, w- I just want to read. This is from Justin Martyr, who was an, an early church father from the second century. So this guy was old enough to be like, you know, Jesus' grandkids if Jesus had kids. That's, this is very, very early. Very, very early in church history. And here's what Justin Martyr writes as he was giving an account of what Christians do to the Roman government. He says, On the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together in one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. And then when the reader is finished, the ruler of the discourse instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Justin Martyr in the 2nd century is essentially summarizing the first point of our text today. What were Christians doing in the 2nd century? From all over the empire, from different cities, they were gathering together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, and someone would read scripture, and let me add, as long as time permits, it's important for me as a preacher to remember, as long as time permits... They would read scripture for a long time and then the ruler of the discourse, someone like Timothy, would get up and exhort them and teach them what it means and how to apply it. The word of God has always been central in our worship gatherings. From the Jews, to the apostles, to the post-apostles, this is how it's done. And that's why it is a huge calling for the pastor to be a minister of God's word. He's called to be a preacher. And so I just want to ask you, on a personal level, how central is the Word of God in your life? How central is God's Word in your life? Does does God's Word dictate how you parent? Does it dictate how you run your business? Does it dictate how you live your everyday life? Is the Word of God, which is so central in our worship gatherings, is it central in your heart? Is it, if you will, your ultimate authority, ruling and dictating all things in your life? The word of God needs to be central. And may it also be said in verse 14 that Timothy, uh, this is such a weighty office, it needs to be reminded that Timothy was uniquely gifted for this. He was called to do this. It wasn't something flippant or light. Because look at what Paul says in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So Timothy was uniquely gifted for this. And that's important for us to see. It's important for us to understand. But it also reminds me of what 1 Corinthians tells us in chapters 12 through 14, that all Christians are uniquely gifted for ministry. Not every Christian is is, is called to be a pastor. But but Paul is crystal clear first Corinthians the Holy Spirit gives everyone gifts and so I would exhort you today to to be sensitive and discerning and to pray about what are my spiritual gifts and how can I how am I utilizing them for the sake of the body We have all been uniquely gifted for a ministry role and Paul is telling Timothy here don't neglect your gift So I'm telling you here don't neglect your gift Now, just by way of a side note, many people throughout history have made pretty dogmatic ordination standards off this verse. And I just want to briefly tell you why I don't. So you'll find different kind of ecclesiastical models that talk about, well, you can't be a pastor unless a certain group with a certain lineage has laid hands on you. And I just think it's convenient in all of these practices that they neglect the prophecy side of this. Right, because notice, it wasn't, this was kind of a unique ordination scenario here. Like, the elders are laying hands on Timothy, but in this case, they're not just merely affirming his gifts, they're actually prophetically departing these gifts to him. Right, what does it say? Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So, many of these ecclesiastical traditions that have really rigid, dogmatic ordination standards seem to neglect that prophetic side of it. See, if if this is our standard, it's not just enough to have elders lay hands on you, that they have to actually have the gift of prophecy, and they actually have to be the means by which your pastoral gifts are imputed to you. And we don't practice it that way today. In fact, many of these traditions don't even believe the gift of prophecy even continues today. So this is not a hard, fast standard for pastoral ordination. Or what we mean by that is the calling of a pastor to become a pastor. But I do think there is a general principle here where we want our gifts to be recognized by the people of God. I don't want to be rogue. I don't want to just say, listen, I am called to be a pastor. And everyone in the church goes, yeah, we tried that. And it just doesn't, it didn't really work out. You say, no, 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 no. This is my calling. I'm going to do it. That's not how it worked for Timothy. He, he did have the confirmation uh, of the people of God, specifically of his leaders, identifying, imparting, imparting to him and recognizing these gifts. So are we the church, this is my point, the church can help you identify your gifts. The church can tell you, yeah, you're really good at that. Or they can very graciously say, eh. that's what we do. Sometimes it's hard, but we want to fan into flame, if you will, our gifts So Timothy is called to utilize his gift and to be a preacher, an administer of God's word, a good pastor preaches. But what's equally important to this text is that we really only covered one half of it. Paul doesn't just say to preach the word, Paul also says you gotta practice what you preach. You don't get to preach and leave the practicing up to them. You need to practice what you preach. Uh, A preacher is not just a preacher, he's a practitioner. He applies and learns everything from the Word of God just as the rest of the congregation does. Because look at what Paul says in verse 12. Right after telling Timothy to command and teach these things, he tells him, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers in example, in speech, and conduct, and love, and faith, and purity. So he follows up this very authoritative, bold, command and teach. And then he follows it up with sort of recognizing that Timothy's a young man, and that might be a difficult thing to do, to try to stand up here and be an authority, to command and teach when everyone out there is older than he is. And so Paul says, that's not an issue for me. We know that generally speaking, pastors should be older. I mean, the word elder actually comes from the word for old, older. So uh, it's probably not a good thing if, if every pastor in America was, was, was really, really young. That's probably not a good general rule. But Paul does not say you have to be a certain age to have this kind of authority in the church. In matter of fact, he tells them, don't let them not trust you. Don't let them look down on you. Don't let them despise you because you're young. Paul is essentially saying that it is in fact possible for Christians to act older than their age. Paul is calling him, don't let them despise you for your youth. But notice how Paul does it. Paul doesn't just say, listen, respect the office. You're the pastor. I don't care about how old you are. You're the pastor, so they better respect you. End of story. No, although Timothy's young, Paul still calls him to earn his respect. It's not just given. He's still called to earn it. Because he says, don't let them despise you for your youth. And what's the best way to counter that very natural tendency? It's it's not a natural thing when you have years of life experience and training to try to submit and listen to younger people. It's a very natural, understandable thing. How does Timothy combat this notion? Does he just lay down the law? I'm the pastor. Be quiet. No. (laughs) Dramatic effect. No. He says... Verse 11, commanding to teach things, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Live your life in such a way, be so godly that they will be compelled. They will, a matter of fact, I dare even say it, enjoy listening and submitting to you. Why? Because you have set them an example. And what is he to set the example in? Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. That is this five-fold way of telling Timothy all of your life needs to be godly. Every part of you, what you do, what you say, what you think, what you feel, sanctify it. Become godly. And if you live this godly life, if you walk in godliness, these people will be able to earn your respect and they will submit to you and they will listen to you. He calls Timothy to set an example to practice what he preaches. Now, we have to remember that this in and of itself is a weighty thing. I mean, to set an example, what does that mean? It means that everyone here is listening or following me. They're looking at my life and they're saying, I want to be like that. That's a, that's a weighty thing. I, I wanted to ask you this question. What would this church, and I know we have many visitors here and we're very blessed by that, but just imagine you're sort of a part of us for a moment. What would this church look like if every if everyone was as godly as you? How different would this church be if everyone was as godly as you? Would we pray more or less? Would we, Would we walk in purity more or less? Would we be mature, would we be godly? I mean, that's a weighty question. It's a humbling question. As I was sitting in my office studying, what, what would Redeemer Christian Fellowship look like if everyone was as holy as me? And I was convicted by that. You know what? I don't think we would pray more. I don't think we would pray more. I was convicted by that. But that's what Paul is calling Timothy here. You live your life in such a way that you are striving for that end where you could say, if the church were like me, we would be growing in holiness. Set the example. Give the people something to look at, something tangible to say, I want to be like him. The pastor is called to preach the word of God, but he is also called to practice what he preaches. We, we see this again in verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, he says it, very crystal clear. Practice these things. He doesn't just call them to teach these things. He calls them to practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your what? Progress. And that gets us to our next point, which is the pastor is called to preach. He's called to, pers- or to, to practice. And he is also called to Persevere. This isn't a one-time show. You don't preach one good sermon and live one good day and then you're in the clear. This is a never-ending process both as pastors and as a church that we are constantly growing in the Word, constantly progressing. And that's why Paul says, may everyone see your progress. May every year you prove yourself more more and more sanctified. Progress is not the same thing as arrival. Paul doesn't ever expect Timothy to get to that perfect state. All right, I made it. I'm perfect this is the finished product. Now you guys have your example. No, he is just in a constant state of progression. All of us are in that constant state of progression, but we are never called to give up the fight. We are called to practice and immerse the things taught in the Word of God and to persevere in these things always. Uh, my wife's former pastor before she moved and got married was a man by the name of Tom Askell, and I loved one time I heard him in sort of a Q&A format. Someone asked him, he's been a pastor a long time. Somebody asked him, At this stage, what's the most difficult aspect of ministry? What's what's the hardest thing about being a pastor? And he didn't say anything negative about the people of God or the potential bureaucracy of of gathered people. You know what he said was the hardest thing about being a pastor? He said the most difficult aspect of ministry is managing the sinfulness of my own heart. I am my biggest problem in ministry. I am the hardest thing about being a pastor. And why did he say that? Look at what Paul continues to say in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself. Timothy was not called to be this tyrannical dictator looking at everyone and finding their faults and and calling them out and bullying them around. First and foremost, and we saw this last week, Timothy was called to watch over yourself. You are just as much a sinner as anyone out there. So I am calling you to keep a close watch on yourself, set the believers an example, and progress in this always. Everyone in here is responsible for self-reflection, to keep a close watch on ourselves. We are our own greatest enemies. Whatever gift you have, whatever role in the church you have, your greatest issue is that you are not enough like Christ. That's the most difficult aspect of all of our lives is that we are just not enough like Christ. And that's why we are called. We are called to believe the gospel, to re- remember that we have been forgiven of our sins, and then we are called to persevere in godliness. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then we conclude with this amazing tidbit. Persist in this, for by so doing, what are the consequences? Of faithful ministers. What are the consequences of good pastors, generally speaking? For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's weighty, right? Uh, the word "save" here is being used probably a little more generally than we're wanting to see, and because we talked last week, he used that word "save" earlier, and it was a much more general statement. It wasn't just. What we call soteriology, meaning getting to heaven, the study of salvation. But he's talking about the overall life of the church. The church's ability to fall into apostasy, the church's ability to crumble and fall, your ability to not persevere in this Christian life, one of the most important elements to preventing those things are godly ministers who will minister the word, who will practice the word, and who will never stop ministering the word, and who will never stop practicing the word. Godly ministers who persist in the apostolic commandment to keep a watch over themselves, to progress in godliness, to command and teach the word of God with a authority, when we do these things right, that is the strongest defense we have of making sure that this church, RCF, never falls into gross apostasy. What he's saying is that the effective ministry of the word is powerful to maintain. It's, if God uses it through his grace to sustain this church and to sustain us as a people, if you persist in this, you will save yourself and your hearers. That's huge. We have to understand that in our own lives, both as a corporate church, as pastors, and as individuals, what we do with the Word of God is everything. If you believe it, if you understand it, and you put it to practice, that is what your family needs, that is what your church needs, that is what your business needs, that is what you need. You need to know the Word of God. You need to be familiar with it, you need to practice in it, and you need to do this always. We see the absolute power of godly ministers to save both themselves and their hearers if they preach the word, if they practice what they preach, and they persist in this, and they never give up. And just by way of conclusion, I I just want to briefly address our guests, and, and I just want to tell you something as, as a pastor, and I was hesitant to do this because I'm, I'm new here. I'm new here, and I did not know Fred Doe very well. And so I was afraid if, if I say anything, is it going to look condescending? Or is it going to look like I'm forcing it? But I, I, I just want to briefly tell you something, that when I first came down for my first visit here, the first time I'd ever met Fred, this is the first time I've ever met him, We shook hands and he barely even got his name out before the first question he asked me was, so what are you reading, tell me about your library. And then I tried to tell him and the very next question he asked me is, what are areas in theology you think you're weakest at? you want to know why he did that? Because as a pastor of this church he's called to minister the word and he cares, he cared about what I believed, what I would teach, and how effective I would be at ministering the word. That's why he did that. And then not long after I moved here, he was in the hospital. He was in the ER, and I went to go visit him and to pray over him. And he was he, he was fresh off a car accident. And I heard he was really, really sick. And I went in there, and he was joking and laughing and hopeful and encouraged. And I came back, and I told people, I said, I was amazed given the circumstances, how happy and joyful he was, you know what they said? Everyone in this church, you know what everyone said? He's always like that. He's always like that. And I could just see the godliness radiating off of that moment. And, as Jesse alluded to, this was clearly something that lasted through the end of his life. As he persisted in this. As he grew in this, that, and he established generations and legacies that all the way up to his final days here, he was persistent, he was persevering and caring about the Word of God, ministering the Word of God, and practicing what he preached. He was not a perfect man, none of us are. And I didn't know him that well, but the little that I saw, I saw a man persevering to the end of his life in godliness and hope and courage and faith, with a love for theology, a love for doctrine, a love for God's word, and a love for this church. And if, if my three weeks of knowing him is worth anything, that, that's what I evaluated. And so I was, I'm proud to have known him for the time I did. And I'm sure you're proud to know him for as long as you did. And, and I can personally attest that every pastor of this church that I've met. Well, I've met all of them obviously at this point. But every pastor that I've gotten to know is godly. And they love the Lord and they love his word. And the people of this church should be very encouraged by the group of elders that we have. And you need to remember how important it is to have it. Because apart from that, you risk losing yourself and the rest of your church. Godly ministers are so important. May we praise God for the men that he puts in that position. And may we ask God that he would give us those same qualities. To love his word, to apply his word, and to always persist in doing such a thing.